0: I wanted
1: a film that in a more compelling way really focused on what it would be to be an alcoholic and the family relations. I'll, I agree with you in terms of a red herring because ultimately that's what it is and quickly that's what it is and, and actually but the thing is to me that's a distraction. You see the filmmakers pulling the strings with something like that and you don't need, it's a kind of cheap shot in my book. You don't need something like that. Just hone in on you got you have a great actor in one of her best roles ever just let the camera be there with her and just give us more domestic scenes even around the house around the family without that kind of cleverness of well you know she's been here since the 17th century and her ancestors were wrongly accused of this and that. yeah i can see it from that perspective but to me it takes us away from where the film should really hone in
0: hello and welcome to at the movies with mike and marie a show where two film professors talk about movies i'm marie westhaver
1: I'm Mike Giuliano.
0: Today we're going to talk about the Good House and then Rose. We're going to start with the Good House, which is a Sigourney Weaver, Kevin Kline movie about a realtor with a problem. Mike, how much do we give away about the plot?
1: Well, we can give away some of the plot, at least. On a personal note, I actually had interviewed Sigourney Weaver very early in her career when she was doing Alien back in 1979, and I've always, at that point, she was best known as the daughter of the uh, television executive, Pat Weaver. And, you know, I've always liked her as an actor and I've always rooted for her. And she's oftentimes known for those kind of action roles, of course, but she's done so much good work in other genres. And I think this is actually one of her best performances. I think if you look at her overall career, this is on the short list and she really anchors this film. I think that she should get an Academy Award nomination for Mm -hmm. this performance to cut to the chase on it. She plays a character named Hildy Good. So the film can be a little heavy handed at times. If somebody's named Good, maybe they're not so entirely good. Maybe there's some issues here. So without spoiling or giving away anything, really, you you know pretty quickly in the film that she is a real estate agent and she has a drinking problem. And that's going to run throughout the film. One of the things I liked a lot about the film is the fact that it's so convincing and not just in terms of her performance, but in the scripting, in terms of what it is to be an alcoholic who denies it. And she'll say, well, drinking wine, and she's a divorced woman, and not just that, that her uh, husband left her, but left her for a man. You know, all these things that sort of you know, rub her face in the fact that she's very much single on her own. She says she's fine with it, but you got to wonder. She's well in the middle age and, and she's living by herself. And even as a real estate agent, her protege has been on the rise and is stealing clients from her. So in her personal life, she's very much on her own. And as a business person in a small coastal Massachusetts town, where she's actually one of the town leaders, if you will, you know, celebrities almost in town, she's losing business to this former protege. She's got reason to be bitter, to be a bit unhappy. When she starts drinking, or she's been drinking, but when she starts drinking more, one of the things that's so convincing in the film is she convinces herself that while well, she's having another glass of wine, and that doesn't count as alcohol somehow, you know, it, it, but by uh, the end of the film, she gives up the wine and she drinks vodka, and even she has to acknowledge that's alcohol. But the film is actually really, really quite compelling at times in terms of how she tries to hide that from other people. And, and so that's actually, I would say, the strength of the film, Sigourney Weaver's performance, and the way in which this character has to come to terms with her alcoholism.
0: Now, it's based on the book, which I did not read, but what I thought was very literary of it was the cleverness in which they show that her drinking is her secret life. Because in her real life, everybody takes advantage of her, not just her protege who steals her clients. She's got this terrible receptionist that she has hired as a favor to a friend, and the receptionist's just the worst. And her family, you know, honestly, if ever there was a reason to drink, it would be this family. She's got this ex husband who has left her for a man, but he's still around and she's paying him alimony. And she's got these two daughters who they're so disrespectful. They're so judgmental. I mean, obviously they're dealing with the mother with an alcohol problem. So there's something to be judgmental about, but they never cut her any slack. And she also doesn't insist on, she just lets everybody run roughshod over her. So they insist on her doing this, that, and the other thing, and the way that they want her to do it. And yet she's supporting them financially and emotionally. You just wonder where else besides having a drink on the side without anybody knowing about her, you know, piece of herself she's kept to herself. It gives a lot of sympathy to that main character. And Sigourney Weaver is wonderful in it. You never once think that she's really a doormat. You think she is just trying her best to keep her family together. I was ready for her to be more explosive about confronting people. With the way that they were perfectly happy to take her money but not willing really to give her any real support
1: well marie that's you're making a lot of good points and one reason why she does not feel like a doormat whether she is or not i mean i understand what you're saying about her but one reason why you don't necessarily feel that way as you watch the film is the fact that she would deny that right she's one who say you know she's still successfully working in real estate and she's happy living on her own and so on and in other words And you know that and in a very uh, almost visceral way because with the structure of the film, a lot of it is given over to not only voiceover narration by Hildy Good, by the Sigourney Weaver character, not only the voiceover, but also direct address to the camera. This is a somewhat unusual feature film in the sense that relatively few films will do this. It's not unprecedented, but relatively few to have that central character square off and talk right to you, right to the camera eye. And as she does that, she's making her best case. Now, whether or not she's accurate, whether or not she has the best reading on her own life. These are things Marie is starting to address in terms of issue a doormat. But the fact that you know she would argue back on a point like that, wouldn't she? Because her voiceover narration so often is saying, I'm fine. She may not be fine, but she's saying, I'm fine. And that's one reason why she keeps denying the alcoholism. It's just, well, we drink. And she knows she's really smart, but you know, smart people can be as delusional as anyone else. And as a smart person, she knows the signs of alcoholism. One of them is if you're alone really being alone uh, what's called drinking alone and she knows you shouldn't drink alone and so what how does she rationalize this point it's actually like funny and not funny in the film she's well, I'm not drinking alone. My, my cats are here with me, that that kind of reasoning. And, and the film is full of things like that, which, you know, it's easy for us to kind of pick at them and make fun. But, you know, if you were in that situation, you could easily rationally, you're in the, your kitchen by yourself, you're pouring another glass of wine, and yeah, you're alone. But no, your, your kitties, your pets are here. They're keeping you company. So you're not drinking alone.
0: I loved the way she broke the fourth wall. Talk to the audience directly. Because it immediately you felt like she was being very frank and direct, which made you think she was truthful about everything she was saying, rather than maybe a little delusional about the problem that she has. So it actually took me a while to really realize what her problem was. They don't really, they allude to it for, I think, like the first hour. It's only in the second hour that it really starts to reveal itself, which I thought was very clever, because it is like discovering someone who is a functioning alcoholic. And then, you know, you notice that they are they don't seem quite right. You think something's off. But, you know, there's always some excuse that you can make. What I found was sort of implausible was that her family is very insistent that she gets some help and she goes to rehab and she comes back and insists that she's changed. And there she is at Christmas drinking a Virgin Bloody Mary. But she keeps getting up to... I'm just gonna go check those pies in the oven, and they don't show her. But you know, every time she goes into that kitchen, she is putting real vodka in the Bloody Mary because she gets happier as you know the night goes on, and no one is noticing that you're going into the kitchen where the alcohol is sitting right out. No one is suspecting that that's exactly what you're up to because that's of course what you would do.
1: I think you're right about that. The the scripting has some weak. And that's one of them right there, just in terms of how the family would respond. They would be hypersensitive to her condition. And if if mom keeps disappearing into the kitchen and comes back with another drink in hand, maybe she's putting something in that drink. So that's actually a great example of how the film is, is a little soft in that way. Speaking of softness, I think this is a film that deals with a tough issue. And Weaver's performance is so spot on. And yet the film itself has a kind of soft focus in some ways, in terms of the romance that she'll have, a rekindled romance, and in terms of the alcoholism, first of all, Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Kline work together extremely well. They've worked together before, Dave, The Ice Storm, and so on. And they're so sympathetic as actors. It plays perfectly in this film because they had been, their characters had been high school sweethearts. And now they're going to rekindle the romance or maybe just a romantic friendship. You know, I don't want to say more about it as how that's going to play out. That works extremely well from an acting perspective, the two of them back and forth. From a scripting perspective. I think the film goes into a kind of soft focus in terms of how it handles the rekindled romance, in terms of how it handles the alcoholism and its treatment, the scene that Marie mentioned. The film's not as tough as it could be. This is a film that really should wring tears from you it really should get to you that way at a gut level in terms of what this woman's up against it never quite does that fully because it oftentimes opts for like convenient or soft or happy smiley kind of conclusions to things that wouldn't be so necessarily happy smiley if you will in that respect and i think what really hurts the script in in the home stretch towards the end without spoiling anything is that there are a number of peripheral characters in the film some of them are better scripted than others. Some of them seem kind of, you know, almost stereotypical, almost like small town characters, uh, you know, underscore the word character. Oh, it's a small town character. Some of that's kind of hokey sort of sitcomish with the way some of them are treated. Like, you know, the old guy who sits out in front of the store and always has passing judgment on, on, the, on the world as it goes by. Some of that's kind of creaky, actually, as, as, as comedy. But where in terms of where it wants to go for drama it would be enough drama just to have her coping with her alcoholism and with the family issues that could come with that. Instead, there's what's been referred to as third act melodrama. And I won't say what it is. There's something really dramatic that does happen in the town that pulls everyone into the action, including our protagonists. But it's something that comes sort of out of nowhere, It's just sort of tossed in. It's really hectic and frenetic and, 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 you know, a genuine crisis in town without specifying at the moment what it is. But just watch for that in the sense of something big is going to happen there. But it takes us away from what should be the central issue, which is this woman, her alcoholism, her quasi-romance, if we can call it that, with an old boyfriend and so on. That's sort of, it doesn't get pushed aside entirely, but it gets subsumed within this bigger story at the end, which is like, really, do we need this? It's like out of nowhere. We had enough dramatic material to work with. We don't need that something extra. Without, again, saying what the something extra is, how did you feel about it?
0: Well, you know, I think you've hit on something, I and I'm making little notes while you were talking that... It was actually, it seemed like it was four movies all competing to be the same movie. One is the story of a woman who is an alcoholic coming to terms with it and fighting against having to admit it. Then there's, it's a small town story. So it's the story of, you know, this beautiful young woman who looks like Gal Gadot moves into the small town and nobody knows her and how's she going to fit in and what sorts of upheaval is that going to cause. Then there's the whole thread about, What it's like to be a realtor in a small town, some of which I thought was fascinating because it's always kind of interesting to see behind the scenes of an industry that you don't know a lot about, you know, so you're thinking, I was thinking at the beginning, oh, this is a movie about, is she going to be able to make a sale and, you know, get back her clients and her, her status in the community. And then finally, it's about an old love who maybe you've got another shot at and all those things are competing for your time and, you know, time on the screen. Some of those were really nice moments, like when she goes out on the boat with Kevin Klein's character, because she wants to see a piece of property that you can see from the boat and check it out, see if there's some ways she can weasel her way in and get this person to be her client. But that's a lot of things going on without even getting to what you're alluding to, which be you know the third act with the big, you know, the whole community needs to come together moment. I thought those disparate elements worked sometimes, but not all the time.
1: Can I add one more story to the mix? If <laughs> yes. We need to have, yeah, another. This, this <laughs> Let's go to five. five. This is story number five. Okay. She makes the point that she has been in this town. Her family's been in this town since the 17th century, and because we're on the coast of Massachusetts and so on, references will be made to the you know Salem witch trials, this and that. And there are some witchy references, if you will, as if and and so this adds a sort of quasi supernatural element as if we needed that. And you even on the soundtrack at Season of the Witch and all and the film has a little bit of fun with that, but it goes nowhere there's nothing really in her character to suggest that she's a witch or has some kind of supernatural power. It's all silly at that, at that point. And yet the film does tease it out a little bit. And I thought, why? I mean, you know, it's possible to live in a, in a coastal town in Massachusetts and not have a witch in your genealogy. I, I mean, you know, it just didn't, it, to me, it was distracting. It just seemed like, as Marie said, we've already got enough stories competing for our attention. We don't need that wisp of that whisper of a story about witchcraft. <laughs> what did you make of that?
0: You know, I think that was a red herring. I think they threw that in there because it comes up early before you figured out that she has an alcohol problem. You just think people are just overreacting or picking on her. And I thought having her be a descendant of one of the one of the women who was burned as a witch or drowned or whatever they did to her was a false flag because you were thinking, oh, so she comes from a whole lineage of people who were wrongfully accused, who were you know, destroyed on Trump's charges. So having laid that groundwork only to overturn it later, I thought was sort of a bait and switch. Yeah, but
1: this is a film that where they should not rely on bait and switch that way. In other words, I wanted a film that in a more compelling way really focused on what it would be to be an alcoholic and the family relations, I'll, I agree with you in terms of a red herring, because ultimately that's what it is, and quickly that's what it is, and, and actually. But the thing is, to me, that's a distraction. You see the filmmakers pulling the strings with something like that, and you don't need, it's a kind of cheap shot in my book. You don't need something like that. Just hone in on, you got, you have a great actor in one of her best roles ever, just let the camera be there with her and just give us more domestic scenes, even around the house, around the family, without that kind of cleverness of, well, you know, she's been here since the 17th century and her ancestors were wrongly accused of this and that. Yeah, I can see it from that perspective, but to me, it takes us away from where the film should really hone in. And when I said earlier that this film should be wringing tears, it never does quite. And I think that's one reason why. As Marie said, it's got at least four or five storylines going. And the witchcraft one is just like, I know it's incidental to the overall storyline. It disappears pretty quickly. But for at least that stretch of the film, it takes our minds somewhere else. And I don't think the film should do that. I think we should stay focused on her in that kitchen with the glass of wine that she says is not alcohol.
0: I also agree with you about the character who's always sitting outside the place where she works, you know, shooting the breeze and offering little nuggets of wisdom. But one of the things that he does say that I thought was sort of unusual and that she doesn't pick up on it is he says, you know, you should come to a meeting, meaning an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, because that's where you find out who's selling a house, who needs to buy a house. There's all kinds of scuttlebutt going on. He says this every time he sees her, that if she went to these meetings, she would be plugged into what's going on in the community. And you do see her interacting with people in the community but not in that sort of Better Business Bureau, Chamber of Commerce kind of a way. So I was surprised why cynically she just didn't go to the the meetings just to drum up business.
1: You know, in terms of the various story elements here, I agree very strongly with you. One of them that I found very inherently interesting was her job as a real estate agent. It really does take you inside the business in a way that's very convincing. You really, in terms of, you know, on, on the surface, these realtors are all big smiles and, you know, great to see you and here's the house and everything's stage managed. But we know that, you know, behind the smile, there is a business person who, you know, is competing with another business person to get that house or something. And this film does take you inside the real estate business in a very convincing way. And I like that about the film. And I like the fact that, you know, if you want to get her to an AA meeting, that's where people spill their guts, right? And they tell you everything and you will find out whose house is on the market. So, you know, there's that pragmatic reason to go to the meeting and find out what's about to come on the market. And the film has enough of that that I think it helps to anchor the film in in a kind of plausible scenario of what it would be like to be a a real estate agent on the surface is, breezy self-confidence, isn't she? She's so sure of herself, but we see the cracks in that quite quickly. And I think that's one of the strengths of the film is that's actually a very, very, when I say, you know, in the good family, a good job for good to have in the sense that it's this kind of profession where there's the public facade and then there's the private reality. And I think a realtor, I don't want to pick on realtors here, but they've got that good cheer personality, which you need if you are to sell a house. You don't want to you don't, you don't look glum when you're showing somebody the house. You want to be cheerful and confident. But surely in their private lives, there might be things, whether alcohol or something else, that maybe are not so cheerful.
0: Well, like I said, I didn't read the book. I kind of want you now to see what they do with the character that Kevin Kline plays, because he's sort of an enigma. He's the garbage man. He's a fisherman. There's a wonderful scene where they eat some lobsters. He's sort of a angel investor in a way. I don't know. It's almost like he gets to, when necessary, they bring the character in to show some compassion or moves the plot along in a unexpectedly kind and generous way. But it seemed at odds with the character, who was just sort of, you know, laissez-faire.
1: See, this is one thing that bothered me about the film, is that he is a, he's an angel character. He's brought in when it's convenient to bring him in. What is convincing is the fact that, you know, he's taken for granted, the character that is, because he's sort of like the garbage man, the fix-it man, this and that, he does a little bit of everything. He's got a scruffy appearance. People kind of take him for granted or actually sort of look down on him that way. And yet, you know what? He's successful. He's one of the richest guys in town, actually. And that actually was convincing in the sense that people have taken him for granted, but you know what? All those little odd jobs he does, they all pay, don't they? He's buying himself there. He's probably, you know, saving his money. He's a smart guy that way. He's actually well positioned financially within this small town. But it doesn't really go much beyond that in terms of character development. Because again, he's just basically a good-hearted guy who deserves to have you know someone named Good as his partner. And so as you watch the film, you realize in terms of stage management, it's almost like you know, the focus is on her so much. And when he's needed, he's brought into a scene. So yeah. it's ultimately, Marie, I agree with you, kind of frustrating. You don't feel like he's fully rounded as a character. He's the, just there in that providential, angelic kind of role. And Kevin Klein's fine with it. He's really good in that role. Speaking of good, I won't use the word again, you know, but the fact that he doesn't have a whole lot to work with in terms of character background, in terms of any kind of nuanced psychology. He's just brought in when needed as a, a romantic partner. And again, that's frustrating in the film. It's one reason why earlier I said the film has kind of soft focus. It just, you know, there should be, I don't, I'm not saying there should be more friction between the two of them, but there should be more of something there. It just seems like when he's brought in, you know, the world's looking looking mighty fine, you know, and and you think maybe this will have a happy ending. But but again, there's so many other story elements competing that even at that level, it doesn't stay focused for too long on that because something else will happen. and, 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 you know, there's a big town crisis that we've been alluding to. And, you know, goodness sakes, that's a whole other movie in a way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I don't want this to sound like it's a pan because I actually thought the movie was was quite good in overall. But I also think it could have been a Lifetime movie pretty easily, the way that they dealt with all the issues and and shot it. But Sigourney Weaver is absolutely luminous in this. And I agree with you. She'll be nominated, if not win the Academy Award. Very, very likable for all of her flaws. So that brings us to Bros., now, this was promoted pretty heavily. I think I saw the trailer for this at every movie I've been to up till this it was released. And I had great hopes for it. It was supposed to be, you know, a rom-com with with gay characters. My sense of it, though, was it was like an extended episode of Will and Grace. What did you think, Mike?
1: Speaking of Will and Grace, Deborah Messing shows up as herself in the film. So they're thinking the same thing, too. For me, there's a good news, bad news aspect to this film. The good news, and this is from a film industry perspective, is that Bros is the first mainstream gay rom-com. In the independent film world, there have been many films that had similar subject matter. It'd be, you know, worthwhile, but not notable in, in, in that respect. This is a film produced by Universal, released. And one reason why Murray saw the trailer so often is the fact it was heavily promoted. Like any big fall release, it got the promotional push that way. So audiences certainly would have been aware of it. And you have one of the the biggest Hollywood studios behind all that. So when I say that's the good news, I'm not talking about the merits of the film as a film at the moment. I'm talking about it from an industrial perspective. It's really encouraging to have a big Hollywood studio give you what's essentially a conventional rom com, but what's unconventional in terms of release patterns is that it has gay subject matter. So it's it's really bringing that to the mainstream. That's the good news. Okay, what's the bad news? The bad news is that it flopped at the box office. The opening weekend was way, way off from what they expected. Not a disaster, but not good at all in terms of box office performance. And there's been a lot of speculation as we talk now as to why that happened or what didn't happen in a way. And it raises the issue of what's sometimes called the ick factor. The fact that, you know, the film did well where you would expect it to do well. Opening weekend, New York, good. Opening weekend, San Francisco, good. Opening weekend, almost every else in America, bad. And so, you know, the target demographic if you will, the gay audience did go, not in huge numbers, I've got to say, even that was kind of disappointing, but they did they did respond to that. The straight audience, to put in really crude terms, the straight audience in the rest of America, flyover country and so on, uh, d- did not go to see it. And that's that's what has been discussed as the ick factor. Now, When I use phrasing like that, and we almost have to put quotation marks around everything I'm saying at the moment, but when I describe things like that, the star of the film, uh, the protagonist, Billy Eichner, his character, which is essentially Billy Eichner, he has been talking about this almost relentlessly since the the film was being made, and now that it's coming out, what happened? What went wrong? And there's a lot of speculation now in social media and in his comments and what they have been referring to, so I safely can use the term ick factor, namely that... You know, you know, couples going off to see the movies on a Saturday night. What are they going to go see? A lot of people sort of decide when they get to the box office, even. you know, sometimes they even ask the ticket seller, is that a good film? (laughs) You know, no, it's terrible. Don't buy a ticket to that. And by the way, I'm selling tickets to it. But, you know, they'll go to the box office, sort of deciding like on the way to the theater. I've actually seen people staring up at the marquee as to what they should go see. The fact that it's a gay rom-com and I don't want to make it seem like homophobia is rampant here, but there may be something kicking in here by way of the ick factor. Like, do I really want to see that with guys? Because the film in its own way, it deserves the R rating. It's quite blunt in some ways, in terms of some of the scenes involving sexuality and various references. and so, on. so the target demographic will know that material and laugh at it. And it's a very funny film much of the way through. But if you're not part of that world, if that's not your demographic, do you want to visit it in, in a movie? What do you think, Marie? Because I think there, there's something to that as to why audiences stayed away. What do you think?
0: You know, I even though I saw the trailer bunch of times and was pretty sure I knew what it was about the tagline is two men with commitment problems attempt a relationship and for a minute I thought maybe what they're going to try to do with it is two straight guys can't make it work and then they decide well why don't we try to be gay that's what uh, that was one of the possibilities I thought they were going to play with going in in terms of the ick factor I also once I realized what it was was expecting full frontal nudity which they do not have it was kind of coy in that way I think it was really the very superficial film i wanted it to be funnier i think the problem with the movie is that the main character is just so unlikable the um secondary character luke mcfarlane apparently he's been in like 14 you know hallmark kind of movies which they do a send-up of in subtle ways i thought he was actually quite good but i think that's because most of the time i kept thinking you know you look just like jason hartley and i kept thinking it was jason hartley but I thought he put more heart into his role. His role was the better of the two roles. I just think that the main character was just so snarky and bad-tempered. And I had a hard time rooting for him. And I couldn't imagine why the other guy, who seemed so sweet and more nuanced, I couldn't make out what he even saw in him.
1: You're making a really significant point here. The Billy Eichner character has a podcast. And on that podcast, he's always constantly telling people that, he is single and he doesn't really want to have a committed relationship and this and that, but he has such a snarky personality. That's the perfect way to describe it. He's so unlikable at times that You know, we're supposed to root for him as the protagonist, and the guy, then the Luke McFarlane character that he, you know, more or less will fall in love with, is is much more sympathetic as a character. But that's something you discover as you watch the film that it's losing your sympathy that way, perhaps, because the protagonist is just not such a likable guy. But that doesn't explain why people wouldn't even go to see the film. You know, in other words, you know, when you watch the trailer, you wouldn't have any inkling of of that being the the case there. So I'm just I'm just thinking out loud on this one for this film for the reason that you know people just decided not to go whatever kept them away from it the film itself does have some really funny material but it's also really predictable in some ways it falls into the the pitfall of a conventional rom-com as it moves into the home stretch some of it is just like oh really superficial and really kind of forced and i thought you know for an unconventional film in terms of the film industry it it ends up going a rather conventional route even, even though some of the uh R-rated references, it will, you know, get your attention as the film goes along. So it's certainly coy in terms of things like nudity, but it's not coy at all in terms of verbal references to all sorts of things. And that might be a turn off to people who are watching the film or, or might consider watching it. But the film, to its discredit, ultimately goes down a very conventional path in terms of how films like that tend to go. So why is it doing that? If you're going to be really unconventional in various ways, why fall into the same pitfall that so many rom-coms have? Very agreeable, very likable films oftentimes, but just, you know, we've, we've seen that movie. We've seen When Harry Met Sally, and you know, we get references to it here. Do we need to go down that same path?
0: Thank you for saying that, because that's one of the things I was thinking when I was watching the film was, you know, that stock scene in almost every rom-com where one of the characters realizes that they're in love. And so they go running through the street, you know, to get to that person. And I think it's cornball when it happens in, you know, a, a rom-com with hetero people. The fact that they used that in this, I didn't, it was like, really? That, that's just, that's dumb. I, because <laughs> I expected something more. I expected something, you know, funnier, edgier. And it, it just really didn't deliver. So I think it might be the people are too homophobic to see this, but I think it's just got problems with the story and the main actor.
1: Yeah, I agree with you.
0: Yeah, but that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.